Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to a new episode of my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I am sorry, but I have a little cold today, so sorry about, um, you know, the voice. Uh, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the U.S. to discover their secrets behind the scenes, share with you new interesting locations, and find out which new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the show. Last week, my guest was Flavien Desoblin, the owner of both the Brandy Library and Copper and Oak in Manhattan. And obviously, we talked a lot about bourbon. You can find the show notes of this episode and all previous episodes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. And you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Be sure to listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other phone podcast app. Please subscribe to the show as you do not want to miss future great episodes that are coming soon. My guest today is world-winning chef Gabriel Kreuter at his namesake Two Michelin Stars restaurant located in Bryant Park in Manhattan and at Kreuter Handcrafted Chocolate Shop next door. He combines his classic French training and Alsatian heritage with his love and passion for food and techniques from other cultures to create a real comfortable fine dining experience for his guests. His dishes and tasting menus reflect his own personal history at a high and consistent level, embracing new ideas but without giving in to the latest food trend. He is a humble and very inspiring person with whom I had a wonderful recording and eating experience. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm very excited to have you on, on uh, my podcast, Flavors Unknown. It's very a pleasure. Very happy to be part of it. <laughs> Thank you. Let's dive directly into, you know, your life and um, I'm really curious. So this year, in 2019, you receive the two Michelin stars. So congratulations. Yes. First. Thank you very much. Thank you. So can you take us back, you know, the, that moment, that day, and how did you feel and how the team, you know, felt about it? Well, I can tell you that the team felt amazingly proud of achieving this. This is not just me achieving this. This is the whole team working together. And since we opened the restaurant, it's about four and a half years now ago, getting towards two star Michelin has always been our goal. We, right at the get-go, after three months of opening, we were lucky to get our first star. And we were very, very proud because we never thought it's going to go that fast. And it gives some extra power to the team to really seek for the next goal, which is the second star. How I felt, how we felt, it's funny. You feel funny because you don't know what to expect. And then suddenly around 11 o'clock, uh, you get a phone call uh, from the, the big director of the Michelin and uh, they want to talk to you. It's like, okay. So, <laughs> and then they say for the 2019 guide. Uh, That's a good sign already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, calling you. We give you, <laughs> we give you uh, the second star, two-star Michelin. And we jumped and for joy and and then uh, and then i went to the lineup and um, announced it to the team everybody was really really happy and and that evening we had uh, all together we had a, a glass of champagne uh, really overjoyed is it a feeling of accomplishment it's a, it's a nice feeling it's a feeling of accomplishment but it's interesting because it's an accomplishment for the past almost if you mm -hmm. can see that you know it's uh, you're working very very hard to accomplish something and then you get you get rewarded for it, but that reward is literally for yesterday. So then 
everybody comes together and it's like, so what's next? What are we doing next? And each time you have to find that motivation. You have to find that, that way of, of driving a team in a passionate way so that we are here. We love what we do. So we want to do it in a sense that fulfills the day. So is the next step like the third star then? Well, <laughs> you know, that's something that everybody came to me and said, so uh, chef, what's next now? And I said, well, we're a team. Let's put everybody together and see what you guys think and what, what you want to do all together. And, you know, I listened and, and everybody was so excited and said, chef, we have the second. Now we have to push for the third. And I said, okay, if this is what we, if this is what you want to do, let's put our heads together and, and a plan together and let's walk towards that. There is no guarantee we're going to get that, but it's beautiful motivation. And the nice part is that everybody, the dishwashers, the cooks, the front of the house, the waiters, sommeliers, everybody really is part of that and wants to to strive, to, to try to get that third star. So that's what's nice. It's nice to see that teamwork, that support, that one pushing the other for the next thing. That's the beauty of it. Are we getting it? I, that I don't know. But the beauty is the sense of teamwork, the sense of accomplishment, and also the sense to make customers, guests happy. We are in a business where, you know, we love what we do, we cook, At the end of the day, we also cook a little bit for ourselves. We cook a little bit what we want to eat, mm -hmm. we don't, you know, and, and hopefully doing so, we kind of engage people, engage the customer and make them happy. And hopefully they have a great moment with us. For the people that who are listening, that is not part of their world. What does that mean? The gap between a second star and a third? Can you describe this? Or? I think the difference between a second star and a third star is really, you know, Michelin doesn't really tell you, they don't really tell you what makes the difference. But I, I think what really makes the difference, it's really the cooking in a three-star level is probably much more personal to the chef's personality than a one in a two-star. It becomes more ingrained in, in, in his own personality, his, in, in his beliefs and pushing forward a way of cooking that is really, really, really deep, personal. Okay. And I think that's really what it is. For sure, I don't know. Okay. But that's my sense of things. So if you are looking back, you know, to your career where, you know, you started at the Eco Hotelier, you know, in Strasbourg, can you describe what are like the few, from your point of view, the few key important milestones that took you from the young person you were at that time to now being a chef at a two Michelin star restaurant? Well, I'm going to start very early on. Uh, I always, since my youngest age, three, four years old, as I can remember, right? I always wanted to be a chef. So I grew up on a farm and I had a mother. I was lucky to have a mother still have my mother, but she's an amazing cook. And she used to cook in the town for some little weddings, little things like that. People who came to see her all the time for things like that. But she's an amazing cook. And I was always more involved with her than outside in the fields. And I had always a passion for cooking. I was always involved. She had a lot of cookbooks. I was always looking at cookbooks, dreaming about food, looking at the lobster, How looking at this. That, that was between, you know, six, eight, ten, oh, wow. ten years old. And I always wanted to be a chef. So during my school vacation, starting at 10, 11 years old, I started to go in the summertime to see um, my uncle who owned the hotel restaurant. And then I had a second uncle that owned the pastry shop. And a third uncle that was a butcher. Oh, wow. And the family from my mother, they had a duck and a goose farm. So I was in deeply, deeply involved in, in food. And I spent my, summer, my summers then with my uncle. And at the time, now I know it, but at the time I didn't know it. He gave me a little bit of a hard time. You know, it's like when you go out and you stash to make sure that this is really what you want to do. So he gave me a hard time to, he showed me a little bit that, 
this is actually a challenging job. He gave me some cleaning jobs to do, peeling potatoes, all the ugly stuff that not many people want to do. And I did it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go through this. And then later on, I, I did an apprenticeship with him. And I spent four years being an apprentice with him. He became literally, you know, he became my mentor. He, be he became the guy I was looking up to and always asking questions. I was always picking his brain about stuff and we cooked together things. He showed me techniques and things like that. But I spent four years with him. And uh, at the graduation, I did very well. And then I was selected to, uh, to be part of, uh, of a contest in France that is called the Meilleur Apprenti Cuisinier de France. Yeah, correct. Yeah, wow. So I, uh, I did that for the regionals and I won at the time. And that gave me a position to go to Paris to be part of the semifinal in Paris. So that was at age 18, first time in Paris, and I did the semifinal. I got selected to do the final. And at the end of the day, I won. I was Meilleur Apprenti de France. That's and that fantastic. was the beginning for me of a different mindset, of mm -hmm. a different thinking. My uncle had, his hotel restaurant was just a simple hotel restaurant. It was not Michelin star, nothing, mm -hmm. but very good food. It was known for very good food. And he then... You know, I did this Meilleur Apprenti de France, and I remember coming back home to the restaurant, and, you know, I was very proud and happy about it, right? So you're 18 years old, you win something like this, and it's like, wow, you know, you tend to have a little bit of a big head, and right? Then you, and then your uncle <laughs> and then my you uncle, back to, my uncle to, right away to said, reality. said, brought me back to, to reality and said, listen, this is very nice what you did. It's a great achievement, but don't forget that this is really the beginning for you. You don't know much. You don't know anything. Basically, he said, this is such a big spectrum cooking that you're never going to stop learning. So just take it in and move forward. Take that as a stepping stone to achieve a dream. And from that point on, then I got interested in what Michelin means, what technique me, more technique means, like what, what, is, what, what is there more for me? After that Meilleur Apprenti de France, there was a reunion in the region and they gave me some gifts. And one guy, a teacher, came close to me, a former teacher from the Ecole Hôtelier, and said, he looked at me in the eyes and said, Washington, D.C. That's, that's what he said. To really? Me, only that, yeah. And I said, yes. And my mother was with me at the time. And she said, I saw you talking to... Uh, <laughs> To Mr. Stephanis was his name, Mr. Stephanis. Like, what did he, what he wanted? I said, well, he offered me to go to Washington, D.C. And she said, hey, what do you say? I said, I said, yes. And she said, no. I said, yeah, I want to go. <laughs> so in 1988 and 1989, I went to Washington, D.C. In a, in a restaurant called, that was called, doesn't exist anymore, Le Caprice at the time. I took that job because the chef was a French chef that was the second cuisine, was working many years in Paris at Ecole Hôtelier Jean Drouin, the right hand of Jacques Sylvestre. Mm -hmm. So, and I, once I knew that, I said, yeah, I want to be there. So I spent a year and a half on a G1 visa. At the time, you know, you go into this thing without realizing the potential that sure. you can get out of that. You're going to change your life. So I did that. It was not the easiest job. It was, it was hard. I never really learned English in school. So I came here barely speaking, you know, a couple of words of English. And I spent an, a year and a half with him in the kitchen. And looking back today, that was a turning point for me because I had a teacher with me for 18 months and anything that I asked had an answer. And this is, the, that was really the beginning for me to, really, you know, sometimes there were, there were instances with my uncle or, or this guy is like, can you shut up now? Can you, can you just like walk? And instead of talking, I'm not a big talker, but I wanted to know why, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, always the why, sure. why yeah. do I have it that way? Why do I need to do it this way? And my driving, my, my, my motivation was if I understand the why I going to adopt the technique and do it the right way and then move on and add things to my I call it today the toolbox. It's like you, you, you go and you, 
you learn something and you get better at it when you feel very good at it with repetition. You put this in your toolbox and you mm -hmm. go to the next tool and you keep adding, adding to your knowledge. So that was really the beginning for me to really self, like in my head, asking my own questions and try to, trying to answer them. If I could not answer them, either making research in the books. At the time, you could not just go on Google, right? Correct. There was more books and yeah. talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. Today, everything is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But in those days, if you wanted to make research, it took a lot of time mm -hmm. of your day off to do that. So that's really what, what happened for me. And uh, I kept going. And from there, you know, then I had to go back to do my army in France. And, and then I worked in, in many different places. But I always worked in places where I, I always needed to feel I can learn something. Okay. It didn't matter if he had one, two, mm -hmm. or three star Michelin. It's important for maybe a resume, yes. Sure. But I think the most important thing is to work in places where you feel that cooking is happening, you feel that technique is happening, and you feel that your questions are answered. And I always refused to work in places that were not gratifying people, mm -hmm. you know. I, and when and I you want to add something to your toolbox, yes, correct? So. exactly. Want to add something to my toolbox, but also wanted to work in in, in environments that were decent, mm -hmm. that were the human person was respected. Okay. Because remember, in those years, mm -hmm. we're talking about twenty five years ago now, sure. kitchens were not the easiest, mm -hmm. and you had a mixed bag. But I myself never really spent time in places when I felt that the environment was too harsh. I rather moved to the next, to the next uh, place to work at. And that's just it, you know, and, and we're working many hours in this business. And I think that we're spending more time than with our family. And I think it can be, it can be fun. It can be good. It doesn't have to be the crazy side of it. So your uncle was, um, as you said, your first mentor. And then there's other, you know, obviously very, let's say, well-known chefs that have been, you know, that you work with. So if I mention, you know, maybe two names that obviously come to mind, what did you learn from them? So the first one is uh, Jean-Georges and the other one is Danny Meyer. Jean-Georges is a very good friend, now a dear friend. But I learned from him of being open, being open to the outside, being open to uh, other cultures, other ways of cooking, other techniques, adapting them to your own cooking style, uh, learning how to use uh, spices, learning how to really m mix up different two or three, kind of like that, that fusion way, but very sm in a very smart way. I loved his way of, uh, of putting a dish together. You know, always the seasoning was always very important for him and uh, the cleanliness and, and the way he, uh, he performed. And the way he was with his, he is still with his people. Never a word higher than the other, like really leading people and, and showing them what he wanted from them, you know, in, in a very nice way. He was basically when somebody's asking, <laughs> asks me is like, and what do you think about George? George? I usually say, well, he was, uh, he's probably the best boss I ever had. Anything on uh, Danny Mayers? Well, Danny is a whole different spectrum because Danny is much more, you know, Jean George, we're talking about a chef mm -hmm. uh, and then restaurateur. Business. Business, right? And then Danny Mayer, you're talking more about uh, really a restaurateur oh, yeah. that pushes forward concepts and sees things in a whole different way with a different eye and uh, focusing much more on the total, on the, on the global, global experience than just the cooking. And it takes a while for a chef to understand that it's not only cooking that makes the, the experience, that it's a little bit more than that. Hospitality and, and, and how you speak and behave with the guests and how you receive them. And also he's the master of, of basically of, of, of that, of that whole demeanor in a dining room where it's where you feel welcome it's not over the top and and i think that's what's really uh, nice about about him 
and he manages very effectively his businesses, you know, um, on both sides. What was nice with Danny also was that uh, I worked almost 10 years with him and uh, I was, you know, free to do what I wanted to do at, uh, at the Monon at the time when we opened. He trusted me and we worked very well with each other. And, you know, the result is, uh, I mean, the Monon is an amazing restaurant still mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the place we are here today. So the restaurant that, um, you know, has your name, you know, on. So how would you describe this place, like the food and, um, you know, and uh, the ambiance, you know, of the place? The food is uh, French. It's Alsatian-inspired food. It's really digging in my, in my roots and my background at the beginning of, of the whole story. And then blending in the world travel the love of food from different other cultures, different techniques, and blending that together, but all, always with that little Alsatian spirit in it. And the Alsatian spirit can be in a product, it can be in the way of seasoning, it can be in the way of uh, using uh, acidity, mm-hmm. it, of, of using smoke, things like that. You know, it's, there is always a little link to the background. And the ambiance, same, it's, uh, it's something that has been built from, it's basically the story of my life, this place, because uh, you, have, uh, you have those big beams that are reminiscent of the, you know, of the, of the beams in, in, the, uh, in the houses in Alsace, Correct, yeah. and they are 1880s original ones from, from an old farm in Vermont. And, and everything that we have in here is connected to where I grew up. So it tells, it tells the story. He tells basically my story and the restaurant, I wanted to do a restaurant where people are feeling comfortable, well received, they well received, where we don't go over the top. I want people to have a good time. And behind that is a little bit something that is connected to the, the Meilleur Apprenti de France, where when I was in Paris as an 18 year old, boy there and I won this thing and I said now I want to go to some of those famous places and in 1987 in December January 88 you go into you go and visit some of those places and you dressed as a as a schoolboy right you mm-hmm. just dress normally and you cannot even put your feet inside they just say hey you you don't belong here yeah you cannot afford it you, mm-hmm. you they kind of like kick you out sure and that's kind of like Having grown up on a farm and having dra- dreamed about food and things like that, it's like, then you go and you, s- you say, I want to I wanna try to see what that is, what, how that comes across. And the first thing you encounter is like kicked out, you know, on a red carpet or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. And that's something that stays with you for a long, forever. And I always ask myself, I don't need to have a jacket. I don't need to have a tie. The food won't taste better. So why can Very we good. not get yeah. over that sure. and it took years but we're getting to that point you can still be classy without sure. without being you know overly dressed so mm-hmm. that's really the background and that's really what i want people to feel here welcome having a great time with friends family or business whatever they want to do we give them a stand next to them a perchero if, if the if the man wants to take his jacket off he's welcome to do so so I fit today. Yeah, I fit it's in. perfect, you know. <laughs> and this is really, I want people to have a great time and, and not overly brainy. It's really digging in, having a good time and, 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 and enjoy the moment. Mm-hmm. I want to make people happy with what we do. So you're talking about the, the food that you are making is rooted into, you know, where you're coming from. So Alsace, which is the northeast part of France, close to Germany. And then after that, there is the twist or, you know, the, the almost like the unbounded influence coming from, you know, from different, different places. Con- yes. Yeah. So can you describe a little bit, you know, your creative process and how do you achieve that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, one thing, uh, a lot of people ask me, what is Alsatian cooking? How is sure. it? What is it really? Right. So uh, something I thought, I thought about it a while and I said, how can I explain it, it without getting very confusing? And. I came up with that, like I say, Alsatian cooking is basically the rusticity and the, and the hominess of the German cooking mixed up with the refinement 
and the finesse of the French cooking. So almost like kind of like a fusion before anybody talked about that stuff. And that's the way I see it, where we have those flavors that are familiar, but then we bring them up to a higher level with the, with the French finesse. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit how I explain what Alsatian uh, really, really is. So how do you make like a twist and a creative spin on the very, I would say, very standard and beautiful and outstanding, like well, tart flambé, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, mean, I love. A, a tart flambé, it's, it's three elements, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's uh, the fromage blanc onions and, and, and nicely smoked bacon and, and, the, and the bread dough. Sure. So then it comes down to uh, flavors, flavors that you want to bring in, the harmony you want to create. You can do, we do a, ni a very nice one here also with, uh, with Hand of the Woods. But there are beautiful tart flambés that we did a couple of those when we did a special tart flambé night here. We did one with duck confit and then the, the, the duck the, confit, really? the duck confit oh, on it. Wow. And also, uh, we finished it up with the skin of the duck, very crunchy on the top uh -huh. and a little bit hazelnut. So that was beautiful. We did one with smoked salmon. I think it comes down to that three element composition that harmonizes the flavor. It's only three or four things, but you're looking still for that harmony where the onion is always linked in it, mm -hmm. and then the smokiness or the comes from somewhere else. Okay. And but it's 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 three things. So here the 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 innovation and the creative process start from like uh, a standard recipe that almost comes from the farm and and you know yeah. in your background. And you know that when you when you touch at that cooking, when you touch at that stuff, which is really the integrity and the history of a region, there are two schools. There is the school of like, you don't touch at that. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect thing. Sure. You very know, you're crazy if you touch that. It's kind of very French, very right? French thinking that way. And then it's like, let, let me see what I can do and try a couple of things out and how this thing, you know, I have an idea and try it out. And then it takes also an open mind to try mm -hmm. to, to willing to eat it, you know. But here... So how far do you go? Well, here, I go as far as, uh, as long as I'm happy with the result, yeah. I, I don't stop, you know, it comes down to that, having that integrity of like saying, okay, I like what I have in front of me. I like the flavors, how they come together. I like the harmony of it. I like the balance. If it's off, I say, okay, let's don't do it. This is not the right part, but also not being the only judge bringing people into the judgment, bringing five, six other people mm -hmm. that know what they're talking about and listen. Don't just, you know, push them away, but listen to what they have to say. Listen to what they like, what they don't like. And sometimes people are very excited about what they taste. And then you say, okay, that's the right part. Mm -hmm. If it's the right part, then you give it to people that you know well, regulars, and see what they have to say. And then you say, okay, let's move forward with this thing. Okay. You know, but the creative process, it can be many different ways to mm -hmm. approach it. It can be product-centric. Yeah. It can be season. It can be an obsession about something. And it can be a challenge. When somebody says, you know, for instance, uh, we do a tart with sauerkraut here and, yep. and, uh, One of your and sturgeon, yeah, yeah. which became a signature kind of now. But that dish stems from somebody that literally came to me and said, we talked a couple of minutes and then he's like, what about sauerkraut? You Alsatian, we have no sauerkraut <laughs> on your menu. And it's like, well, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a fine, in a fine play, in a fine dining, dining it's not, yeah. it doesn't really has its, its place, pace, yeah. you know? And he's like, I challenge you to figure out something with sauerkraut. So I had that in my mind talking to me a while. It's like, that's still a challenge. That's a challenge. Okay, let's figure something out. And then I came along and said, let's try to do something with sauerkraut. So I did this, this tartlet with sauerkraut and I won't say, okay, how can we bring it up? So it's like, wow, you know, I love caviar myself. So why not? And, and then I did kind of like the 360 basically because you're using caviar, but sturgeon is rarely used. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where you have the poorest product, which is sauerkraut, the most exotic one, which is caviar. And then we have the fish that not often used. And it's like, okay, let's put everything together and see how that comes out. And it came out beautifully. So then 
the cha next challenge was okay this is very simple it's a very simple dish but how can i elevate it in such a way that it's also fun on the table it brings excitement it does something to people and bring a little bit drama in and we decided to use kind of like a a wine glass to pipe some smoke in it and then take it off in front of the people and it's something that is very pleasing it, people love to eat it it's it's one of those cliche thing that is now part of sure. of, of who we are and that resonates with it, your goal which is giving the customer a great experience yes so, yeah, yeah absolutely so that's it's one of those those dishes yeah so before we started the you know the recording of the podcast you mentioned that you you travel you know quite a bit so Tra would travel be as well another source you know of inspiration for your creative oh, process travel, tra traveling is a huge source of inspiration seeing different cultures uh, seeing different food and meeting with the different chefs and talking about about flavors textures techniques trying to understand certain things yes and eating out is is a uh, is an inspiration Just sometimes going out and buying your own products as an inspiration, going to the green market, like really, mm -hmm. really being in touch with what's going on and sparking an idea. You know, as a chef, you go out, as a young chef, you go out and you eat and you tend to sit down and picking, nitpicking and picking everything apart. And you forget the most important thing is having a great time because you want to understand what lies beneath, what, how the technique is done. So you kind of sip, you know, and then as you get, As you get older in your in, in in your career and more seasoned, you kind of also understand that the most important thing is really the flavor, and then the technique. But you cannot have only technique and no flavor; it's meaningless. And once you understand that, then you sit down and you eat, and you think about it after, instead of nitpicking everything. And you really, you know, it, it's. I think it's very important to go out and eat, but have a great time have a good time and ask questions and 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 that gives you ideas about combinations about products people you know everybody tries to not use exactly the same products everybody tries to surprise a little mm -hmm, bit mm -hmm. you want to be original you want to come with some with something that is not well known and surprise people so for you what is more important is it like techniques or creativity well I think both are very, very important as a combination. Mm -hmm. Creativity is important, but I think creativity, you only are good at it when you understand the foundation of what you're doing. Because it takes a while to get your, uh, your foundations and your basics together. And once you understand that and you understand how taste and harmony and, 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 and how everything works with each other, then you can drive the creative process. One without the other tends to be only creative is, is a lot of, a lot of mishaps. Okay. But the creativity is the fun part of it. Mm -hmm. It's the fun part of it as not a one person, as a team. Okay. It's creative, a nice, a nice creative process is when, is when you open and you talk about it and you talk about ideas and then you toss them you toss them around with a cup with two or three people that you really really trust and that are on the same page with you and you develop something that really makes sense how would you say your creative process evolve you know with uh, like over the years and do they think it's getting easier or more difficult well it gets it gets easier and more difficult at the same time in my opinion because As you move forward, you're getting more and more, you want more, you know? Yeah. You get more exigent. Yeah, sure. And then you're looking for further and further and further. It's something that is, sticks with you in your head and you want to express it on a plate, basically. But is it something, because you're talking about the team aspect, so is it an evolution where you start and you're younger, it's about, you know, the type of things that you can give as an input, you know, as an individual But now this is maybe well, more like when a, you, a when you, approach. you know, when you're a young cook, uh, when you're a young cook or, or chef de party or something, in many places, first of all, nobody wants to really uh, integrate you or wants to listen to you, part of, of, of that. So you, you stand back and you look a little bit what's going on and you try things out for yourself. But I always try to, and I really, that's what I loved when I was with, uh, with Jean-Georges, where he, 
he let me move forward with with his style of cooking as long as I kept the spirit together. So I had three. And when you say the spirits, what does it mean? Like almost like well, the style of cooking. The style of cooking resonates with what the restaurant is about. Resonates with the identity of the restaurant with him. So you have to respect that. Sure. If you, as a young chef, you walk somewhere and you want to make a revolution and say, okay, tomorrow we're going to cook something completely different that is not identifiable with the with the restaurant. What the heck? You know what's going on here? But I seen it was I seen that as a big luck for me as somebody's giving me the whole house and say, hey, if you're interested, you can run with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and you have to respect that and you have to identity. also say, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go play it, you know, the wrong way. And that's what I'm, I'm really pushing forward with the guys that work with me, with the chef de cuisine, with executive sous chefs, with, with everybody. I mean, I have people that are with me for 10, 12, some 10, 12, 15 years, eight years. Everybody that is part of management in the kitchen here has started on the line. It's people that I know very well. They know me very well. And we work together. They, we're not afraid about talking about stuff. And uh, we decide together if we want to move, if we want to develop something. If it's not in the right, in, in the right path, then I change the path. So how you describe your management style? My, my management style, I will say that I'm like coaching, mentoring, and inspiring. I'm for a whole team to work and move forward with in, into the same direction. I don't like when somebody in a team thinks that they, you know, he's the best of. I don't like superstars. Mm-hmm. They're it, a bit it's, humble. It, it's yeah. It's everybody together that makes it happen. Sure. It takes a village to do what we do. Yeah. I want people to get better and better as they move as they move forward with their career, and I want them to to really succeed. And I give them all the tools necessary and all the support necessary and, and all the advice necessary if they want to listen to on what's next for them, on mm-hmm. what that's really, yeah. So if I read the following sentence to you, can you explain, you know, what it means? Genuine passion and a relentless pursuit of excellence drive us to create an authentic and memorable experience. Well, that's our mission statement. You know what? It was given to you. To me, from your one of your manager, you know, in in the room, which I thought was very very interesting. Great. So that's our mission statement that we created probably six or eight months after opening. In order to, as a team, not me alone, you know, as a team, we sat. It took us a while to put that together, and a long long discussions, but genuine because. Genuine passion, it comes to, like, you really have to love what you do. In order to, to bring the quality on the plate, in order to do what we do, if you don't have that genuine passion, that work is too hard for you. And then relentless is something that is very, very important because we are in a business where it takes a long time to get to a result. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are giving up right at the moment, right when they get to the crossroad, very, very close to the crossroad and having to make a choice left or right and they make the wrong choice. So that's what relentless is. Believe in yourself, believe in the team, believe in your mentors in your in, in who is driving the whole thing. And then, you know, memorable, like I said at the beginning, we hear and hope to make people happy. And we hope that we make them that happy that it's going to stay engraved in their, in their memory. We're going to create something for them that say, wow, I remember, you know, when we were there three, four years ago, that's what we had. That's the nice moment we had. But also, it's not only just the cooking. It's the whole Holistic. package mm-hmm. that makes it memorable. It's not just the cooking. So let's talk a little bit about ingredients and flavors. So the podcast is called Flavors Unknown. So I'm curious about what unique and maybe unfamiliar ingredients that maybe are finding the way into your menus, you know, at the moment, something that you are like excited about. It all depends on the moments. We, we now we uh, 
we using you know we we part of that dog dog today uh, dog to dish uh, so every every thursday we getting 100 pounds of fish that come in from montauk and then we have to use it in a way so you know when when it's black bass it's it's kind of the creative process is kind of easy when it's uh conks or or a, a fish that is not really well known we have to come up with a different process but it's it's using those products a while ago we used jackfruit we did jackfruit with foie gras wow you know it's a, a, an interesting thing because that jackfruit it can be like 25 pounds yes. and just the process and very and, potent yeah flavors. absolutely <laughs> and then we pickled we pickled uh, some we pickled it but just the process of like breaking it down is a learning experience for everybody. Mm -hmm. So things like that is, is, is what we love. And then we're doing a, a, a little cornbread with nori in it and caviar on the top. So again, something very, very simple. And then we, we do that with cornmeal from Castle uh, Valley uh, Mills from Pennsylvania. We do a lot of research to really find the finest products that are unique and want to know the story behind them. We want to know who's making them. We want to know the face behind it. And trying to use local. And try to lose local, local as much as we can. Yeah. Okay. You know, we have the border is Bobolink, so it's out in Jersey. So, but it's like very nice stuff. We try really. Right now, they do, we're doing in the kitchen, right? They're doing something with the tomatoes from the, it's like the market dish with the tomatoes, mm -hmm. which is really surprising to people because at the end of the day, you take a product, the role of a, of a chef, the role of a cook is really to enhance the product. It's taking a product and kind of like extracting flavors of it. Tomato, you can have a great tomato, but still you can enhance it by doing it a certain way, depending on what you decide to do. Same with fish or meat, depending on how good the cut is, how old the meat is, how old the fish is. It, it, that's why a recipe is never perfect. Because you tell somebody, oh, you just cook it six minutes. But if that piece of fish has more water retention than another piece, it's going to cook differently. Same with meat. Dry-aged, has less water in it, so it cooks much faster. So everything is almost, you have, it, it, takes, it takes a while to understand the reaction of things. And we are cooking, the one thing that we do is that we, the techniques that we're using are not crazy techniques. It's cooking techniques. Mm -hmm. We really, we really cook. It's not, we don't just dip a bag in, in the water and 20 minutes okay. later open it. Okay. That's not happening. Everything is still done the way, the way really, I would say the old fashioned way, but we really cook. Okay. And that's what's really important to me. It's to teach people on how to tame the fire, basically, how to use the fire, the heat, every sources, every single cooking style. I've always used things through my whole career, through my last 20 years here. I always used techniques that were either very old techniques or techniques that were forgotten and that you bring back and people laugh at you. Like what, for instance, as well, an example? Well, you know, cooking something in terracotta, basically, mm -hmm. or cooking something just in seasoned hot red wine. Poaching. You, you, you talk to someone about poaching, they think that you're crazy because this is... It's, 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 it's passé. Yeah. Well, but it's so passé that nobody knows how to do it. You know, and not that long ago, not that long ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I watched a little bit what was going on and everybody, you know, everybody working in the kitchen and I said, okay, can somebody do a poached egg for me? And it was a standstill. So I had all those guys here not knowing how to do a poached egg. Yeah, they know how to do the, the, the whole poached egg at 64 degrees. Yeah, they know all of that. But a true poached egg, nobody knew. So then we put, a, we put a dish for a couple, maybe for six weeks on the menu that forced them to learn how to do a poached egg. Little things like that. 
So is it something that uh, talking about traditional techniques or organ techniques or even, uh, let's say, this idea of cooking for enhancing the produce or talking about your heritage, you know, from Alsace, are going to be like the focus on the book that you are working on? The book is going to talk a little bit. It's going to be a double part. It's going to, it's going to talk about the heritage of Alsace. And then it's going to talk my It's going to, it's going to present a little bit the journey that I went through over the years in the US. So okay. the past 20 years. So I, I'm going to combine those two. And we're also going to talk about and present probably a little bit what Alsace is. Okay. It's going to talk, yeah. It's like so people can discover a little bit deeper what that region is. So when are we lucky to uh, be able to uh, flip through those pages? <laughs> oh, that's going to be probably probably in the fall of 21, I will say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a project on itself. It's a project on itself right now. It's just the beginning of the process. So it's going it, to, it takes usually a, like, you know, between a year and 18 months to almost two years to do that. So that's the beginning of the process now. Yeah. Okay. So every time I have, um, you know, a chef on the podcast, I always pick up, you know, their brain to try to maybe give uh, inspiration for home cook that are, you know, listening to, um, to it. So I was thinking that maybe we could take maybe scallops. And then if you have an idea of maybe how you would suggest a home cook to prepare scallop and give it like a spin, I would say a la Gabriel Crether. Just scallops? Up to you. <laughs> this is where it is. It depends what uh, the quality of the scallops. But uh, if it's the really, really beautiful ones, yeah. I will literally tend to eat them almost as a tartare. Okay. Or uh, a ceviche. Yeah. So I will just slice them. In, in, in couple slices and season them with grapeseed oil, a little bit olive oil, salt, pepper, chives, a little bit red peppers in there, a little bit orange juice, and something crunchy. I will put a little bit of puffed wheat or something like that in there. Okay. Mix it. And that's a nice, a nice little appetizer. A couple, a little bit green apple in it. Or then just roast it. Roast it. I will just roast them very, very nicely and make them very simply with... Uh, with a couple mushrooms, and once they're roasted, you know, take them out and. What kind of mushroom do you use for me? A little mix. Okay. I like to mix wild, uh, wild mushroom. Yeah. Wild mushrooms. You know, it's very strange, but if nobody really pays attention to button mushrooms, but yeah. button mm -hmm. mushrooms are actually very good. Mm -hmm. Button mushrooms and a little bit hand of the wood, or uh, if it's if it's uh, the season, porcini are nice with yeah. that. So how are you going to lift that? Because the scallops are kind of very mild, you know, refined taste and mushroom, you know, it's not very potent either. Yeah. <laughs> then we, we, you do just, uh, you know, roast, roast the mushroom on the, on the side, the scallops, and then eat that together with uh, a little bit sauce with, uh, made with a little bit at home. You, just dig, you can just deglaze it with a little bit chicken, a little bit chicken stock or water mm -hmm. or a little bit white wine, mm -hmm. a lemon juice, mm -hmm. and a little bit olive oil there. Okay. And then just all together like that. Okay, cool. A little bit salad. Uh, something nice to do with that, and very simple actually, is roasting the scallops and, and, ser and serving it literally with a nice passed through a lentil soup. Oh, wow. But on on the on the tin side, okay. light and not the whole lentils in it. And it will be like a bed where you put a the scallops on it. it literally yeah. in a in a in a almost like a almost a half a, a half a you know half a bowl of soup with yeah. four or five scallops in it, and that's nice with a couple of mushrooms in it. Cool. Thank you for playing the game. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you very much. Really, thank you. Uh, we have been talking for a while, but I always finish the. Um, the interview with a series of rapid fire questions. So can you share, you know, some of your favorite places like to eat, uh, you know, in, I mean, it could be in New York city or anywhere else. Anywhere else? Sure. Somewhere in Paris. <laughs> Somewhere <laughs> in Paris. Okay. So where do you go? Uh, maybe L'Ambroisie or, uh, okay. Or Arpege. Yes. Okay. Very cool. What is fine dining for you? Good food. Fine dining is, uh, it's really good food done well and uh, without pretension. It's like feeling that's what good food. Yeah. Talking about pet peeve, what drives you crazy in the kitchen? When people are disorganized and walk dirty. 
when a cook has a dirty uh, apron on, I think it's important to learn. It takes a while. It's important to learn to work clean and to not get dirty. And when you get dirty, to change or flip flip it or do something that we're not working in a sure. in a car shop or something. We work in a kitchen. <laughs> and it's it's supposed it needs to be clean. I love when it's clean, and and I'm like crazy about it. Okay, what ingredients do you think you would say it's overused in the kitchen nowadays? Well, it depends of the moments. It depends really of the moments. It depends of the fashion. It, it, there is something going on with cooking where suddenly somebody's doing something, and then everybody's doing the same thing. Yeah, you know, it happens like, with like what it uh, octopus for a while. Sure, somebody true. had octopus, and then suddenly everywhere you go is octopus. Yeah. Uh, you have one you know, on the menu? No, not right <laughs> now. That's really it, you know. I remember when I long time ago. I remember when I I first put the tart flambe out. Nobody knew in the city who what tart flambe was. Mm. Now I go anywhere, and everybody has tart flambe. Yeah, true. So people don't even know what it was at the beginning. And it's kind of like that fashion that is really funny. But you started it, so that's great. Well, yeah, it's not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like when, you know what, it, it's like those trends where everybody's jumping on the bandwagon just because the press is going to talk about it. Sure. Well, I never really did any of that. And I, I think it's important to follow what you believe in. So if there's a chef that you would like to collaborate with. Any from anywhere? Collaborate mm -hmm. with. I don't know him. I know of him, but I don't know him. Rony Redzepi. Sure. He's a cool yeah. guy, I yeah. think. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure he's going to listen to my podcast, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I like a lot of, I like to collaborate with a lot of different chefs. I would love to do something with uh, Dominic Crane, actually. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. It will be the East Coast and the West Coast. Yeah. So last question. Can you please complete the sentence? The last time I had a day off, I... The last time I had a day off, I, uh, I went out with my family, with my daughter. Okay. And had a good little, uh, a good, uh, a good little dinner. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Chef. I really appreciate your time. You were very generous with it. And uh, it was great to have you on, on the podcast, Flavors Unknown. Thanks for having me. What do you think? Wasn't Chef Gabriel Kreuter a great guest? I particularly love his story about the first experience he had with top restaurants in Paris after he graduated Meilleur Ouvrier de France. The experience of him being kicked out of those key restaurants in Paris because he was not dressing to their standard obviously had a long-lasting impact on him. Make sure to visit Gabriel Kreuter Restaurant next time you are in the vicinity of Bryan Park area in Manhattan. In two weeks, my guests will be Chef Harry Cameron from the restaurant Amuse in Delaware and the owner as well of the fast casual concept Grandpa Mac. That episode was recorded at the International Chef Congress from Star Chefs in Brooklyn and New York City. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.